All righty, go ahead and get your Bibles out. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 today. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. One thing I've learned uh, being a... Uh, adventure novel reader. <laughs> Actually, I'm going through Lord of the Rings right now. Who likes Lord of the Rings? Come on. We're in a church. We've got to have a lot of Lord of the Rings fans. Uh, one, one of the things I've learned about reading adventure novels over the years is that there comes a time in every good adventure novel where uh, the main characters get lost. Uh, or, or they're fighting some kind of unforeseen circumstances, something in their life where it just feels like they don't know how they're going to get forward. The trees are crowding them. They can't see through anything. The bad guys are breathing down their neck. They, they don't know where to go. And so typically in that moment, the, one of the wiser characters says, we need to get perspective. And what do they do? Well, you've you got to get to high ground. You've got to climb a tree. You've got to get to the highest mountain. And once you get to the highest peak, then you can look out over everything. You can see where you are. And all of a sudden, the trees and the forest doesn't look so dense. You know where the enemies are, and you know where you're supposed to go. And a little bit of perspective changes everything. Sometimes in life, it feels a little bit like you're in your own adventure story, and you're stuck in the woods and everyone's breathing down your neck. Sometimes it feels in life like you don't quite know what direction to go. Sometimes, frankly, you come into a room like this, and it's very easy to come into a church service, and you hear the pastor preach, and you see all the wonderful things happening in the church, and it feels like everyone else has their life in order, they know what's going on, they know where they're supposed to be going, but you, internally, what you're feeling like is everything's crowding in on your life, and you can't make sense of it. The way I've described it in a number of biblical counseling meetings is sometimes it just feels like life has gotten itself in so many knots, you don't quite know which one to untangle first. And so you just kind of stay stuck. And biblically, what, what Christians need to always do, in fact, where I want to get us today is we need to regularly, if not daily, climb the highest tree or get to the tallest mountain in order to get some perspective on what's going on. Because Jesus has a lot to say about what's happening in our life and where we're going. And, and if we know where we're going, if we have the proper perspective, we know how we're supposed to behave in the moment when it all seems like it's really hard. In the, in the Bible, that what we're talking about is an eternal perspective. To climb the highest tree is, is, is to get up above the tree line and to see the future, what Jesus has said is coming, and to allow that perspective of eternity to now shape your reality. To say, if this is where Jesus has promised it's going, I know the end. Therefore, I can begin to align my life, no matter the circumstances, towards that end. We begin to determine in our life what is right, what is wrong, what doors should I go through, what doors shouldn't I go through. All because we have a healthy, eternal perspective. Now today we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the chapter on the resurrection. This is the biggie, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Only one other chapter, probably the very end of, of the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible, has more to say on the, re on the resurrection than this chapter does. And we're going to have two weeks in here. Week one, we're going to be looking at the significance of the resurrection. Then week two, we're going to come back and really ask, what's heaven going to be like? What's it going to be like in the resurrection? What are our bodies going to be like in the resurrection? And so my hope for us today, as we study this glorious chapter in the Bible, is that we would learn to build our entire life around the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That we would learn to order our entire life, everything about us, around the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me begin, and we're gonna break this. We have quite a bit of text to get through today, all the way through verse, uh, I think we're gonna go through 34 here. And so let me uh, begin by reading verses one through 11. 
the Apostle Paul. We're moving into a new section here. We just got done teaching about different spiritual gifts that we have, the differences of men and women. Now he's bringing his entire book to a close. Only one more chapter after this, and it's his conclusion. This is his last topic after everything else is coming to a a crescendo with the resurrection of Jesus. Now, transition, verse one. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Pause there for just a second, side note. Here we have a persecutor of the church, someone who murdered Christians, saying, by the grace of God, I am what I am. What good news is that for us? And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Now, in this first section, this is a, this is a bit of a, uh, a repeated, uh, almost like a, a song or poem that would have been sung in the early church. This section was probably written and, and, and regularly told among the churches within seven years of the resurrection of Jesus. Some of the earliest kind of creedal aspects coming from this chapter in scripture. In the first two verses, before he even gets to the resurrection, every phrase needs to be paused. I wish we had a sermon for every phrase, but I'm gonna go quickly because every little bit frames this conversation on the resurrection and where he's getting to. First, he says, I would remind you of the gospel. What's gospel mean? Gospel means good news. So we're talking about the gospel today, the good news of what this scripture is about, of the gospel that I preached to you. Paul, the apostle Paul was a preacher. He regularly got in front of crowds like this and he proclaimed, he spoke, he he dictated the, the words of God about what? About this message, particularly the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. He wrote a lot of letters, he ministered and he preached. We must always continue to preach the gospel. I preached to you which you received and so they received it with open hearts. Here comes the apostle and they're, 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 their heart posture when they were sitting before him preaching was, what is the Lord going to instruct me to change me today? They received it. In which you stand. I love that language. That, that's language of taking a position. This is where I stand. I've preached about Martin Luther before where he used that language when he stood before the king and he said, this is where I stand. I can do no other. Under, under, under fear of death, death sentence. They said, change your convictions. Change your mind. Here I stand, I can do no other. Paul looks at the whole church, he says, I preach the gospel to you in which you stand. They have taken their place against society. Society's breathing down their necks, telling them what they ought to do. Here's how we're gonna persecute you. Here's how we're gonna shut you up. Here's how we're gonna close your businesses. Paul says, you stood firm in the truth of the gospel. You did not waver. You did not bow to cultural pressures. You stood firm. And by which you are being saved. Interesting language. Now, you are saved in a moment. It takes place. The moment Jesus changes your heart, you are going in one direction, 
And then Jesus gets a hold of you, and we call that the point of salvation. It's when you are saved, right? Jesus changes your heart. But salvation is a lifelong process as well. You're saved, yes, but then this, this work of, of working out your salvation with fear and trembling, as Philippians says, of, of seeing maturity develop in your life as you live into the realities of Jesus in your life, growing over time. What we just prayed over our college students, you are being saved, you are being transformed in the image of Christ. You are being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you. Now this is important, what does that mean? Now, this is one of those doctrines that I come back to regularly in this church. I try to teach with clarity for this church. The doctrine here is an important one. It's called the perseverance of the saints. If you remember when we studied the book of Romans together, we worked through all these doctrines very carefully. The perseverance of the saints. And what that means is that once Jesus has gotten a hold of you, he will never let you go. And that's good news. Once he has changed your life, you can never unchange your life for Christ. Now, what about those who have outwardly proclaimed that they believe in Jesus, but have since walked away from Jesus. Sarah and I were just talking about a friend of ours from years ago who seemed like they were walking with Jesus at one point, and now when you look at their life and what their words are saying, it seems that they don't believe. Paul says here, if you hold fast to the word I preached. So if you don't hold fast, what that means is that you never experienced salvation in the first place. There are a number of folks walking around today who are claiming to be followers of Jesus, but at some point in the future will walk away, and what that reveals is that Jesus never truly transformed their heart. They tasted, perhaps, they tasted of the goodness of the church. They experienced some kind of emotional transformation, but never experienced a genuine heart change where God changed them, because once that happens, he will hold you fast. We sing those words in this church. He will hold me fast. And then he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. Think about what we study in 1 Corinthians. We, we've studied all kinds of topics, right? We've studied um, food offered to idols, right? Five weeks on Paul talking about food being offered to idols. Talk about one where we had to figure out how do we, what does that mean to bring that into 21st century context? Relationship of men and women. We talked about bringing elitism into the church, all of these different topics, spiritual gifts and prophecy and speaking in tongues. And now he comes to an end, he says, of first importance. What is the central drumbeat that the church preaches every single Sunday? It's the death and it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that changes lives. It's not that all the other issues aren't important. We need to preach those. We need to be educated in them. We need to believe them and live into them. But when it comes to what is, what is this all about? Why are we here what is of first importance? It's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now before we move to the resurrection, which is a doctrine that is married to the death of Jesus, they go hand in hand with each other. First, Paul roots us in the death of Jesus Christ. Of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. Now what does that mean? He died for our sins. Well, when we say, said a minute ago that uh, you have been saved, right? And by which you are saved, verse two. We have to ask the question, saved from what? What, what are we saved from? Are we saved to live a, a slightly better life? A bit of, more of a moral life? What does being saved mean? Saved, Paul knows, his audience knows exactly what it means. That word means you are saved from one thing, and it is the wrath of God that is poured out as just judgment towards sin. 
So hear this with great clarity. When we look out at the issues of the world and we see all the problems that the world's got going on, and I feel like we regularly have issues to pray over as this church, hardships in in our city, hardships in the nation, hardships around the globe, the root issue that causes all of that is not wickedness and evil out there, but is a heart that has, has, has become its own God inside each of us. We've broken God's law. And as a just judgment, God looks down and says there is wrath that is owed on every single person who has sinned against my holy law. To break even the slightest of God's law, Jesus says, you've heard it said if you commit adultery, you, are, you, you have sinned. But I say to you, says Jesus, if you look at a woman with lust in your eye, you're already guilty of the sin of adultery. To even have the slightest bit of sin is to fall underneath the judgment of God, underneath his law, because he's a holy God, he's a just God, there is penalty for sin. And the good news of that is that every hardship, every wrong that's ever been done to you as a Christian, think, think of the, 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 you know, so much, so much of the wickedness that happens in the world goes unaccounted for in this life. You know, sometimes you get the bad guy, sometimes, but a lot of times you don't. And a lot of you, that's your story. Some of you have had some tremendous wickedness done to you. And the bad guy got away. And the good news is that they will, every person will stand before a holy God and give an account before their life. True justice reigns and wins in the end. And this is what's remarkable. God is a just judge. And we, we ourselves have brought disgrace upon God's holy name and brought sin into the equation. And there's judgment that comes on us as, as, as a result of that. And so when Jesus goes under the cross, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21 reads this. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I love this verse. This is a good memory verse. Another doctrine for you, right? You're gonna get a good, another heady doctrine. I'm sorry, I like to throw these out for you to remember them. Double imputation, right in this verse. Double imputation, what does that mean? Two things are being imputed here. One, our sin is being imputed to Jesus. Jesus goes to the cross. He who knew no sin goes to the cross and our sin is placed on his shoulder. And so he bears the weight of our sin underneath the wrath of God. And then his righteousness gets imputed to us. (laughs) So not only do you have your sin forgiven, but God now declares you righteous. He declares you what Jesus truly was because what Christ has done on the cross. And then it says that he was buried. See, one of the mistakes modern man has done is we've tried to retell the biblical story to make it mean something it doesn't mean. And so you'll find a lot of modern scholars look at texts like this and say, yeah, sure, Jesus rose from the grave. That's a great picture of us, of how to overcome your problems. They, they spiritualize it to the, to the point where they say, what can you take away from the resurrection of Jesus? Well, when you have a hard thing in your life, just you know, work hard at it and you will overcome just like Jesus overcame. And they spiritualize the whole thing and Paul cuts right through that and says, no, he was buried. His physical body died. His lungs stopped breathing. His brain stopped functioning. His, his heart stopped beating. And they placed a dead man in a dead man's tomb. That was the judgment that was owed to you and I because the, the wages of sin is death. Jesus paid the full penalty. They placed him in a rich man's tomb in fulfillment of the scriptures. The Old Testament, it promised that after the Messiah died, they placed him in a rich man's tomb. And Joseph of Arimathea asked for the body of Christ and laid him in a, in a nice tomb in Jerusalem where his body could be tended to. 
He was crucified in fulfillment of the scriptures has said 700 years before this, the prophet Isaiah said that he would be pierced for our transgressions. But then in the very next verse, the prophet Isaiah said, yet he would walk among the living again. See, the prophets knew what the Messiah would do and what would happen, that he would be crucified. He'd be pierced for our transgressions. Jesus was crucified. He was laid into a dead man's tomb. And then on the third day, he rose again. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. His, his heart began to beat again. This is remarkable. And one of the things I want to drive home today, I want to reinvigorate a childlike awe at the story of the, of the resurrection. Because here's what happens. We hear this story. We hear it. We don't hear it. I want to say we hear it too many times. We hear it so often that it becomes commonplace. And we stop letting our, our jaw just drop to the ground when we realize a dead man rose to life. His lungs began to beat again. They were filled with air three days later. Every culture in the world knows that dead things stay dead. You go around the globe, there's one thing everybody knows. When you die, that's the end. Even if you believe in a resurrection afterwards, which many cultures do, when it comes to this life and what happens to that body, dead things stay dead. And that's one of the reasons why when, you, when missionaries go around the globe and they bring the good news of the resurrection of Jesus to, to, to people groups who have never heard this story before, you, you should see the videos of their eyes like this. You're telling me he came back to life? That can't happen. Meanwhile, we hear this story over and over again here in the West, and it's like, it's like it just falls on deaf ears. And the one, the one prayer I've been praying all week is, God, may we be invigorated to have our eyes open and our jaw dropped. He came back to life. His lungs beat air. His brain began to work again. His heart began to beat again. And it was evidence. This is remarkable. He goes through the next few verses, all these eyewitnesses. And notice how he says, most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, check my work. Peter's alive. Matthew's alive. John's alive. Go speak to them. During the modern age, again, skeptics have tried to disprove the Bible to their great failure. They keep failing at this task, but they keep trying to disprove the Bible. And one of the things they've done is they've said, you know, this was an example of mass hysteria. This happens sometimes. You get huge groups of people that say they saw an alien come land in front of them, or you get huge groups of people that say they saw some phenomenon, and then you look at it and you realize it didn't happen. It was just an example of mass hysteria. That happens when big groups get together. You, want to, you know how one of the reasons we know that wasn't the case here? It could not have been mass hysteria because Jesus appeared to many people over many different times in many different contexts over a period of 40 days. That's why he's saying this. He appeared, then he appeared to more than 500 at one time. Then he appeared to James. Remember how Thomas couldn't believe that Jesus had risen from the grave. And so what did he do? He stuck his finger in the wound where the, the spear had pierced through his lungs and heart. Because that's what had happened. A spear had gone all the way through his lungs when blood and water had poured out from him on the cross. Thomas stuck his fingers in his wounds. This was no example of mass hysteria that can be quickly forgotten. A dead man came back to life and every human being has to determine what they're gonna do with that fact in history. I, I, I teach a whole class on the evidence. I just got done teaching it last week. The evidence for Christianity. And one of them is that people are free to say in this world, the resurrection didn't happen. That's a choice you have. But what you have to realize is that if that is the decision you're making with your life, you are going against all of the evidence. 
you are taking a step of faith that is out of line with reality. You're seeing all the evidence going this way, the eyewitnesses writing about what they saw over 40 days. Here's the evidence, and you're saying, I see the evidence. All that evidence would work in every other case of historical record. But when it comes to this way, I'm just going to choose to go the opposite direction and take a huge step of faith. Blind faith in a random direction. The, the resurrection took place, and my job today is to get you to see how remarkable this is. Jesus died and rose from the grave. And the resurrection is the validation of the cross. You know, the, the, this is the good news, isn't it? Jesus died for our sins on the cross. That's what took place on the cross. He went underneath the wrath of God. He poured out his blood that your sin could be forgiven, that you could be in relationship with God. And married to that doctrine, going hand in hand with it, is the resurrection that validates everything Jesus did. The resurrection is the declaration that the Father has received the offering of the Son. That the Father has looked on the Lamb that was slain, the sacrifice that was made, and said, I receive it. It's validated. And now the resurrection is the, the validation that everything Jesus ever taught, everything he ever said, it's true. And if it's true, then that changes everything about our life. He said that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. He claimed to be the Messiah, the one to fulfill the scriptures. He claimed that there was no life to be had outside faith in him. He was the way. And so if you want the life that is truly life, you want the life that, that God made you for, that life of eternal bliss in Christ, knowing where you're going and knowing what your purpose is, it can only be found in Jesus Christ. Everything else is a shadow according to the resurrection. Paul continues. Verses 12 through 19. Now, believe it or not, there was a group of people that were denying the resurrection in the early church, right? Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? So there's a group of people that are saying, okay, sure, Christ might be raised from the dead, but look, we, in terms of the rest of us, we don't need to believe about the resurrection. That's not what's important. Just focus on the here and now. We got issues today to deal with, Right? How can somebody say there is no resurrection from the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now Paul, Paul is, is trying to, to give an apologetic and a defense for the resurrection because if you remove the resurrection from the hope of the average Christian, if you remove that and you say, look, all that matters is your best life now as some authors have written, right? All that matters is what you get out of it right now and, and, and the future of the resurrection. That's not vital. That's not of importance. Then you've changed the Christian narrative. Then you fundamentally reversed what this whole thing is supposed to be built on. G Paul's trying to get us, no, focus on the resurrection and let everything else come in light of that. Now, why was this taking place? Well, this was the philosophy of the day. And just like it's the philosophy of our day, it turns out philosophies come in cyclical patterns. The philosophy of Athens, where the great guys, like, you know, some of those great Greek philosophers of the day, where they came from, the philosophy of Athens was dualistic. They saw the body as, and anything that's like earthly, anything you can touch physically, as dirty, as secondary. 
And they saw spiritual and how you think and your intellect as beautiful and pure. And so the idea of God resurrecting into a physical body, that was dirty. <laughs> that, that's, that's the dirty side of spirituality. True spirituality is only spirit, not physical. And so what's the early church doing? They're borrowing from Athens. And they're trying to philosophize their way through Christianity. You know what Paul says about that, Colossians 2.8? See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit by lies, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. There are a lot of philosophies floating around our day. And just like this first century, we gotta make sure we are not being robbed of the truth of the gospel by believing a philosophy that's snuck into the church. Athens is alive and well, breathing down the church's neck, trying to get us, just water it down a bit. Sure, Jesus, maybe he resurrected, but that's not important for you. No, we cling to the word. And then he gives eight arguments. <laughs> Let me go through these quickly because he goes through the, He just kind of like peppers them, argument after argument, eight arguments. Number one, verse 13, not even Christ has been raised. Paul says, if there's no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. That would be foolish. That's the centerpiece of the entire Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You want to say there's no resurrection from the dead, says Paul? Then not even Christ has been raised. That's not even an argument to make. Verse 14, and our preaching is in vain. One of his arguments is, I have functionally wasted all my breath going home on Sundays with a coarse voice because I've been preaching to you something that's not true. Paul says, all the hours I spent proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ is a waste of my time. You have wasted your time in these seats. And your faith is in vain. Not only is your time wasted on a Sunday morning coming into church, but if the, re if the dead are not raised, your faith is in vain because you are believing in a failed Messiah. Christianity is centered around Christ. And if the dead are not raised, then, then he is not the Christ. He might have been a decent moral teacher on some things, but he's not the Christ if he's not raised from the dead. We, we're found to be misrepresenting God. Now it becomes negative. If the dead are not raised, now we're in a real bad position as Christians. You, you can't have Christianity with that because, because we believe in the scriptures that say that the dead are raised, and now we're misrepresenting God. Now there's judgment for those who misrepresent God. That's why the scriptures say teachers will be judged more harshly. That's why, that's why I pray fervently before I ever step into a pulpit because I know teachers will be judged more harshly. I better be clear and crisp on my words. Number five, verse 17, your faith is futile. That word, it's similar to verse 14 where he said your faith is in vain, but this has more a sense of death to it. Your faith is dead. You're believing in something that cannot give life. It has no power in your life. It, there's nothing here. You might as well just hope aimlessly. That's as good as your faith in Jesus is that there's no resurrection from the dead. Number 17, very importantly, and you're still in your sins. Because if Christ has not gone to the grave and he has not defeated sin, Satan, and death and he did not take your sins on his shoulder, what that means is that you're still in your sins. And that means that if the worst happens today and you find yourself standing before the throne of God in your judgment today, which is possible because we live in a fallen world and no one knows what today brings, then as you stand before a holy God and you give an account for every thought and misdeed and wrong action and breaking of God's law that you personally have ever done, you will be found carrying your own sin on that judgment day if Christ is not raised from the dead. And that's not a place anybody wants to be because the wages of sin is death, separation from God eternally. And if you're here in this room, I want you to know I'm not sugarcoating this. 
You've either put your faith in Jesus and received forgiveness for your sin, the one who conquered sin on your behalf, or you're going to stand before God on your judgment day and you're gonna have an account on yourself and you're gonna carry your own sin and the own weight and the own debt that your own debt that you've earned to hell with you as you are separated from Jesus for all eternity. And my plea with you today is don't let that be the case. That's Paul's plea with you today. That's what he says next, verse 18, argument number seven. Then all those who died in Christ died in vain. <laughs> That's his argument, verse 18. All those who have died already, believing in Jesus as their Messiah, it was in vain. And right now, they are in hell, separation from God. It was all for nothing. All of this faith, it meant nothing if there's no resurrection. And number 19, we're all to be pitied. Why are we to be pitied? Well, if there's no resurrection, then this is all we get. Hear that argument from Paul. We live in a world that's full of sin. We live in a world that's full of brokenness. You and I know that. We live in a world full of sickness and, and aging and hardships and all the brokenness that comes. And if this is all there is, then you have to say God, God has a little bit of a, a twisted side to his, to his plan. Because, because look, in this room, there's a lot of folks who live quite comfortable lives but you look around the world, you look around our city, there's a lot of hardships in this life. What we experience, the comforts of this room, this is not the norm of human history. This is extraordinary comfort. Those who have the least among us live like kings today of the past. And if the hardship of this world is all God created this life for, then God has a bit of a twisted side. We're all to be pitied because there's no hope. There's no hope. There's nothing more. There's nothing more to look forward to. There's nothing to orient yourself around. There's nothing to say, I know where this goes. It's just here. It's just now. That's why other authors would say, then just eat, drink, and be merry. That's where Paul goes next. If this all you get, just drink. Pass the time. Make it a little less hard on yourselves. You're all to be pitied. But Christ has been raised. See, that's where Paul goes next. He says, look, that's, if, if Christ hasn't been raised, that's how it is. But if he has been raised, listen to his argument. Let me read the rest of this text to you through verse 34. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies, all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection underneath him, underneath his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection underneath him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection underneath him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being, by being baptized on behalf of the dead? We'll get to that in just a moment. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. He's speaking about his own ministry and the hardships he has. What do I gain if I, humanly speaking, fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us, eat, drink, and, let, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. 
Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Now, in this middle section, verses 20 through 28, Paul lays out world history. This is very important for us. Paul lays out all of world history in one continuous spectrum. And this is, this is really helpful for us. Because God has told us where we've been and where we're going. So no matter what happens, no matter what takes place in the news, no matter how bad it gets, we can all look forward to what's going to take place. And we can say, we know where it's going. Now let's get our life in alignment with this. So let me rearrange Paul's thought because he kind of jumps out of order as he described it. Six phases of world history since the resurrection. Where we've been and where we're going according to scripture. Number one, Jesus rose from the dead as the first fruits. Verse 20 and 23. First fruits. The first big moment here, Jesus' death, he rose from the dead as the first fruits. And what that means is he's the first one risen from the dead, but every other person who ever dies will follow his lead and rise from the dead. Some to everlasting life, some to everlasting condemnation as a result of their sin. He's the first fruits. Verse 24 and 25 says that Christ is ruling over a kingdom that was given to him by the Father right now very important, good theology here. What is Jesus doing as we speak? Historically, this has been called the mediatorial kingdom. The mediator, think the word mediator. Christ is our mediator. It's the mediatorial kingdom. And Jesus is ruling and reigning over that kingdom right now. And he's doing a very specific thing, two specific things. Number one, as we'll see from this text, he's defeating every enemy. That's what the text says. Jesus established a kingdom And as that kingdom expands, he is in the process of world history right now of submitting everything and every person and every ideology that ever dared to stand against the true reign of Jesus as Lord underneath his feet. None of them will win. For 2,000 years, that's been the story as the church has been growing. And until Christ returns, that's what he's doing. He is submitting every enemy underneath his feet as the true king over all creation. And number two, he's gathering his elect from the corners of the world. That's what, that's what Jesus has been doing for 2,000 years. He's been submitting his enemies and everyone who dares to stand against him. And he's been gathering his church, the sons and daughters of the king from every tongue, tribe, and nation around the globe. That's what he's up to right now. That's what he's doing in this room right now. He's submitting enemies and gathering his elect. Verse 23, the resurrection that is coming. And then verse, let me read that verse 23 again to us. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. We talk about a rapture in the church, this moment when we're caught up with Christ. There is coming a moment when Jesus will return. Make no mistake, it will happen. It will not just be a spiritual event, it will be a physical event on this earth's history. Everyone around the globe will be very aware it's happening. I think one of the ways that will happen is because television has been invented at this point and the whole world can see one event taking place in one corner of the earth. Jesus will return in a physical body riding on a white horse. And when he returns, it marks the end of world history as we have known it so far. Because what will happen is the dead will rise first. This will be a moment. Oh, be found on the right side of human history, church, when this moment comes. Be found on the right side of human history. Because the dead will be raised and be given glorified bodies. We're getting to that next week in what our bodies will be like in this moment. The dead will be raised when he returns. He'll raise the dead to meet him as a victorious king in battle. In the old days, what used to happen is when a king would come home from battle, he'd stop 
about a mile out, outside of the city, and he, he'd blow a trumpet. He'd send a trumpeter into the city, bum, 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 and all the people from the city would meet the king a mile outside of the city. They'd get behind his enemies, because the enemies would be bound in a line behind the king, and, and the king would celebrate his victory over every enemy by marching into the city victoriously, and those who didn't go to battle would get to walk into the city as if they were the ones that won the battle. So here's how it's gonna work at the end of the age. A trumpet will sound. That's what the text, actually not this text, but another part of Paul's writing says, a trumpet will sound. And the dead will be raised to meet their king in the air, a mile outside of the city. And then the king will come into his kingdom on this earth. And all of those who are found in Christ will will get to march behind Jesus into the new heavens and the new earth as if they themselves won the victory, even though it was the king that won it on their behalf. And they will experience the joy of walking into the final kingdom. Death will be the final enemy that is destroyed. At that point, every enemy is dead, even death itself, because there's no more death. It's done. It's over. There's no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears. Death is done forever. Jesus will deliver the kingdom to the Father. What does that mean? Well, there's no more need for the mediatorial kingdom. If, if the two things he's doing in the mediatorial kingdom are gathering his elect and suppressing every enemy, that work is done that work is done when Christ returns. There's no, there's no second chances after he returns. And so he delivers the kingdom to the Father so that God will be all in all. Father, Son, Holy Spirit will reign triumphantly over the new heaven and the new earth. Now, if that doesn't get you excited of what is to come, I, I worry for your soul. I worry because you've heard it so many times. You've grown numb to the reality of what's to come. And what that means is that you are not living in light of eternity. And this text demands that we orient our life around Jesus's soon return. Verses 29 through 34, he says, otherwise, what did you mean getting baptized on behalf of the dead? People are confused on this verse. I think it's very simple. Some people think that people were doing a foolish thing back in that day, baptizing themselves on behalf of people who had died already as if that could save them. I don't think that's what this means, and that's not what the best scholarship shows. I think this is a euphemism. It's a phrase that was used for just a regular baptism. Because when you baptize, what's the image? A dead person coming to life. <laughs> That's what baptism is. Getting baptized on behalf of the dead is what happens when you get baptized. He says, otherwise, why'd you get baptized? If the dead are not raised, what was the point of going under the water as if you're coming to new life? Isn't that the whole point of Christianity? You've been found in Christ? Look at this line, and I wanna, I wanna bring us to a close with, with this line from him. He says, if the dead are not raised, then here's your options. Go have as good a time as you can right now because this is all you get. But then he looks at the church, he says, wake up from your drunken stupor. Church, there is a, a, both a warning and a plea in this passage. Let's start with the warning. The warning is, is that Jesus is returning very soon. Very soon. The days are running short. Christ is returning soon. He is gathering his elect. And there is not a second to waste. If you're a follower of Jesus, that means that he has changed your life forever. He's gotten a hold of your soul. And, and sometimes what, what happens is, one of the reasons we take our eyes off of our, our eternal perspective is because, because our lifespans are so long in, in the modern West, because of good medicine, because of good fitness, because of you know, all the hygienes, we, we've, ex, we've doubled our lifetimes in only a few generations. We live forever compared to what they did just a few generations ago. 
And we live in such comfort. Over time, you just take your eyes off of it. You get caught up in the things of this world. And the warning, the warning of this passage is don't be fooled by by the, the promises of this life. Keep your eyes fixed on that. In fact, meditate and reflect on it daily so you don't lose track of it. That's your guiding light. That's your eternal perspective. What is to come? And if you fix on that, now all of a sudden, everything else can kind of find its place in your life. Jesus taught a lot about this. What does Jesus say? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And and I gotta ask us as a warning today, where are you laying treasures up? You only get a couple days on this earth. It's not that long. In light of eternity, when we've been there a, a thousand, thousand, thousand years, we'll look at the lifespans we had here as just a a speck. And what, what are you doing with it? What, what are you investing your time in? Are you getting to know what eternity is going to be like here and now? Jesus has resurrected from the dead. A dead man came to life, and that's got to change everything about you. But then there's this plea, this comfort as well. If the resurrection is true, that means no matter what you go through in this life, it means that, that there is hope on the horizon. The darkest day the darkest moment will be, let by, will be met by the light of the resurrection. And, and sometimes when it feels like there is no hope, when you don't know what the direction is, sometimes when it feels like it's just impossible, the eternal perspective changes everything, and it must for the Christian. This is what changes it for you. This is what separates you from every other person you know in this city, because we're all going to go through hard things. The great Charles Spurgeon, who I love to quote from this pulpit, he said this, Oh, poor slave, every scar upon your back shall have a stripe of honor in heaven. Ah, poor martyr, the crackling of your bones in the fire shall earn you sonnets in glory. All your sufferings shall be well repaid by the happiness you shall experience there. Don't fear to suffer in your frame because your frame will one day share in your delights. Every nerve will thrill with delight. Every muscle move with bliss. Your eyes will flash with the fire of eternity. Your heart will beat and pulsate with immortal blessedness. Your frame shall be the channel of beatitude. The body which is now often a cup of wormwood will be a vessel of honey. This body which is now often a comb out of which gall distills shall be a honeycomb of blessedness to you. Comfort yourselves then, you sufferers, weary languishers upon the bed. Fear not, your bodies shall live. Park, this is our application to take home today. We need to reorient ourselves by practicing biblical meditation and reflection on our eternity every single day. We cannot let a day go by where we don't start it by fixing for the rest of our lives. This is true. Jesus is returning. He is coming for me. He is going to make all things right. I'm going to see my loved ones who have had their faith in Christ again at the resurrection, and if that is your vision, if that is your sight, if that's where you know you're going, then you can orient your life properly. Then you can go through anything, can't you? What will the world throw at you? They throw death at you, and all you say is, I know where I'm going the moment after I wake up from that. That's the worst they can do, says Paul. They throw hardship at you. They throw all kinds of illness at you. 
They throw taunting at you. Reading through the book of Job right now, they throw all the hardships, even of, 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 of folks misunderstanding you and what it's like to be misunderstood. And the Christian can look at all of it and says, I know where my hope resides. See, that makes you unbreakable in this life. That changes everything about you. Christian, we must orient every part of our life around the resurrection of Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray right now for a Holy Spirit awakening in this church. Lord, I pray for an awakening in this church that we would not get through 1 Corinthians 15 without letting 1 Corinthians 15 do its work on us. That we will be submitted to the text and that your Holy Spirit would take a group of people like this and make us so alive with the resurrection that we can't but, we can't but help to yell about it. We can't but help to live in light of it. God, forgive us for our proneness to take it for granted, our proneness to wander from our eternal perspective. Forgive us for taking it lightly, for thinking of it some days like a fairy tale. Jesus, right now in this room, I pray over anyone in this room who has never actually believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Right now, actually, I know that there are some in this room, Father, who have never truly believed. And God, I pray over their souls right now that you would make them right in your sight before they leave here right now, in Jesus' name that they would choose to believe in Jesus, his death and resurrection, and they, they would experience the new birth that is in Christ, the new hope that is in the resurrection, and the new life of following hard after Jesus. Oh God, I pray that into this room. Wake up your church, Lord. I pray in Christ's name, amen.